On an unusually warm day in early December, Lauren Bielski sat down to discuss mindfulness and how students in the West might best investigate Buddhist ideas with Kempo Pemawongdok. This austere but gentle person was born in Western Tibet, raised in India, and became a monk in the Sakya tradition. Sakya is known for its systematic approach to tantric teachings called the Lamdri, the path and the goal, and for its rigorous application of Buddhist logic. The Sakya order emerged in the 11th and 12th centuries at monasteries where Indian Buddhist texts were being studied and translated into the Tibetan language. It has emphasized the clerical and textual side of Tibetan Buddhism over Tantra. Kempo Pema settled in New York City to teach back in 1982, becoming the first of a younger generation of Tibetan teachers to settle here in the U.S. We talked with Kempo Pema about his own life and experience of Buddhism as a native to its traditions, where cultivating a spiritual life is a cultural norm and as typical as going to prep school and pursuing a professional career path would be here in the West. As interest and intrigue in all forms of Buddhism and the related core concept of mindfulness have recently undergone renewed popularity in the West, we also asked about whether and how a serious student born and raised here might approach studies, concepts, and ethical guidelines for becoming a better, more self-aware, less angry person. Welcome, once again to the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Arts monthly podcast series. A happy 2018 to all. Now, without further ado, here's part one of Lauren's interview with Kempo Pemawangdak. So I'm speaking today with Kenpo Pemawangdak, and we're talking about his particular practice of Buddhism, and we're also talking about his impressions of the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art. Okay, let's start by your telling me about yourself. From your biography, I learned that you and your family left Purong when you were very young. You settled in India in Mungad. You became a monk at seven and later attended the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies in Benares. In 1982, you became one of the first Sakya school practitioners to settle here in the West. My question is, why did you initially decide to become a monk? And then, as a follow-up, how did your understanding of being a monk change as you matured? And my choice of life as a monk is based on the tradition, since we're Buddhist. The spiritual aspect of life is so important that they make sure that at least one of their family members devotes their life to the teachings of the Buddha. What happens is usually if a, a family has three or four children, usually boy, usually second child, they dedicate to the monastery. If you have a hard time understanding it, think of like sending your kids to school 200 years ago in the West. Not every kid is sent to uh, the school. There's one or two go to school and many more remains in the farms. Maybe some even joins the church. Exactly the same idea. Okay, so a very cultural at mm. a young age. Yeah. But later, in my case. The decision to go to the Central Institute 
Was that, that your decision, and was that predicated on, say, your um, particular talents? That time, it's called Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies in India, and it was purely my choice to go there because I'm personally obsessed with. I don't know whether my teacher may have taught me or the parents. I just remember who put that in my mind. The education is the key, and that's where all the good possibilities exist. Even as a child, knew about it. When I'm a teenager, I'm a typical teenager, distracted. And yet, my heart is centered on the education that led me to find the opportunity which led me to go to Center Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies in India. I see. And how did your uh, understanding of being um, a practitioner change over time? That was the whole idea. Teachings of the Buddha are based on evolution. Each person evolved mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and educationally, whether it's philosophy or technology, whatever it is. The Buddha's teaching incorporates some totality of the knowledge in the universe, centered into the heart matter of our own self, our being, our mind. Mm -hmm. And the growth takes step by step. Not a sudden change, and not a luck, not some kind of blessing. Blessing is a big part of spiritual development, but not one particular. It has to be organically, and due process, what you call in the Western social context. Mm -hmm. Spiritual uh, uh, development is a due process thing. Well, it sounds complicated, but I'm sure you'll clarify some things for us. Switching gears a little bit here, how did you first discover the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art here on the island. I came to U.S. in 1982, and Jacques Marche Museum was a very upfront in promoting Tibetan culture in its own right, in its own pace. Mm -hmm. And I have a friend, uh, Nima Dorji, who uh, I think used to be the uh, consultant, uh, and Barbara Lipton, of course, a very, uh, you know, upfront in promoting the museum, mainly because those days there are only 70, 80, or 100 Tibetans in the entire east coast of the United States. So you can imagine that it's very easy to spot a Tibetan museum for Tibetans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Um, now, of course, it's very different. You've got a much broader population. The museum here has quite a collection of fierce deities mm. and... We were wondering if you could give us your understanding of what these deities represent and what their purpose is. Mm -hmm. Deity is form of the Buddhas. And the form and the essence are different. Okay. What you're seeing is the form. Images are forms. Expression, wrathful versus peaceful, are forms. But the core is not different. Or is compassion and kindness. The forms are uh, manifested in as reaction to the forms of the mindset that we as human beings. So Buddhas to interact can only relate to who we are. We can only relate with the good, bad, neutral. We can only relate with the likes and dislikes and the love and hate. We only can see either black, white, or nothing in between. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then anything that is happening in the universe, with a response to that, in their pace, that is a platform 
based upon which Buddha then conveys and teaches the world. So the wrathful forms are mainly, it doesn't mean just in case, because if you're new to Tibetan Buddhism, look like there is a religion or a spiritual value of hate, no. And in fact, it's an expression. Expression we understand when we get angry. <laughs> True. And Buddha would say, don't be angry and be compassionate, but just we can't help it. We have to be angry, especially if somebody hurt us, abused us, and we feel justified. And Buddha says, that's okay, you get angry, let's work with it, and then let's look at it. And it's almost like if you were to look at yourself at the nick of time when you're really angry, and you just take a pause for a second to look at your own face genuinely you'll see strange images there. That <laughs> mm -hmm. forms are more like a mirror image of our negative, hateful, angry state of mind whenever that happens. Okay. And just so I'm understanding, you would argue that you shouldn't just push that away automatically. You should look at it first and examine it. And That's then one of the... Uh, but we, let's take a first step. First step is okay to be angry. Next step will be you may not want to act, react on it because it will deceive you. Mm. It's nice to be compassionate. Maybe you want to act on it because it will save you. you know, that kind of uh, general basic, what do you call, operating system. Okay. Uh, now we're in a computer age. I think That's we true. use the computer language if people understand better. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a great answer. Recently, Time Magazine dedicated a special issue to the topic of mindfulness, which is kind of tied to the previous question because you're asking us to become aware mm. if we're getting angry or if we're feeling mm. anything else, to mm. really become aware of it. Mm. So mindfulness is quite popular here. Do you think it will benefit Western culture, this push toward mindfulness, or at least the fact that it's a topic of discourse broadly in the media and that people maybe are experimenting with it? What's your opinion on that? Since you're asking people who are teaching mindfulness, mm -hmm. it's not opinion anymore. It becomes opinion for the newcomers. Okay. But for us, it's just like as good as breathing oxygen. There's no opinion about it. You either breathe or you don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I can only answer from my angle. Not as opinion, but as a matter of fact. And of course, you can turn that into opinion, of course, mm -hmm. certainly. Uh, there's one funny thing I remember. Uh, this is Sight's note. I have a very good Christian friend. His name is called J. Longacre. He will guide me. He will teach me Western culture, all sorts of things. I uh, teach him little dharma, some meditation. I even remember... I use the word mindfulness, that is about 33 years ago. And he says, what kind of English are you talking about? Mindfulness? What is that? I said, I thought it's an English word. Let me look at the dictionary. I saw it. There was the words there. There's no concept. Right. Now, it is interestingly becoming a universe. It's like as discovering the power of atom. It's nothing new. It's not an opinion. The power of atoms started the day we discovered. No. It's always there. It's always behaving as it is. Mindfulness is literally, it's not a spiritual matter. It's just the air we breathe in a spiritual context. What we're learning is understanding the importance of the mindfulness. 
uh, now we are aware what role it plays in our life and the beneficial effect of it and then the negative effects of the absence of the mindfulness. The, so it's not just idea, philosophy or opinion. It's literally the oxygen of the life of spiritual matter. Well, thank you. That's great. Yeah. Can one truly follow a Buddhist path without becoming a monk? And as a follow-up, how would you recommend that a person seriously practice Buddhism here in the West? Buddhism as whole cannot be followed unless you're a Buddhist. It's like saying you want to go to Boston, but you want to take 95 South. You may be wanting to get there, but it will take you the faster you go, further away you go. Mm. The road has to be taken to the road that takes you there. To benefit from the Buddha's teaching, you have to be a Buddhist. But that doesn't mean that only the Buddhists can benefit from the Buddha's teaching. Anyone, whether you're a believer or non-believer, in fact, many religions can benefit the aspect of the Buddha's teaching that doesn't have to be faith-based. First of all, every religion has three parts. Part, there's a point of view. Mm-hmm. Part, that is behavioral things, the ethical aspect of it. And there's so many, uh, uh, if you go into the details, that will overlap each other's. It's like eating a Chinese food versus American food that feeds our soul, our body. It's the same. Mm-hmm. Unless you have special meat that is too much of this, too little of this, mm-hmm. you can expect mm-hmm. different uh, ingredients in it. Is that right? Then you make a choice. But the question of food is cannot be questioned whether it's worth it or not. Right. The type of food, how it's cooked, can be made difference. Ethical values, peace, happiness, uh, is common to all religion. Compassion, generosity, but each has their own version of what peace is. Like in Buddhism, peace includes some totality of the sentient being. The word sentient being alone is so unique in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. You don't hear that word in other religions that much. Though there is a big openness in all the religion that includes everything, but certain words and ideas, concepts, either it is there, there's not said much. In other words, if you divide Buddhism into three parts, there is a faith-based, there is a philosophical base, and there is an ethical base. There's so many of them, we can benefit even if you're not Buddhist even if you are not even religious or not even spiritual. Now, would you say that it's okay then to do some, what I would call mixing and matching? There's a tendency here in the West to have Mm. like, um, you know, like to keep with the food analogy, Mm. the buffet. Mm. Oh, I'll sample a little bit of this. Mm. I'm a seeker. I want to find a path that resonates with me. I'll I'll sample a little Mm. bit of that. Would you say that that's a serious-minded person can go about things that way? Uh, if you know how to do it, it's fine. It's mm-hmm. like you can be your own doctor. Mm-hmm. But you may not want to do that. <laughs> right. Uh, at least better stick to it. That's what Yisong and Dalai Lama says. If you are a culturally oriented religious person, it's always better stick to your own culture that you have. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't have it, and, but interested in Buddhism, you're welcome too. But if you do have something, 
you will benefit better if your spiritual matter is based on your culture, that you are born with it, that you are associated with it. But that doesn't mean that they are not welcome. But if you're looking for something beyond the culture, then we may have something to offer. Uh, Everybody's welcome. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art, consider visiting our website, tibetanmuseum.org. For more information on Kempo Pema Wangduk and the Vikramasila Foundation, be sure to visit vikramasila.org, located in New York City. So from the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art, here on Lighthouse Hill, overlooking historic Richmond Town on Staten Island, I'm Rudy Basich. Tashi Delek. <laughs>